Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm Cecile Sarabian, and the release date for today's podcast, number 47 in our series, is Wednesday, August 17th, 2016. On today's podcast, Dr. Anna Wilkinson. We trained Alexandra, one of the tortoises, to yawn when we presented her with a little red stimulus, and that took forever that took about six months to train her to do that but by the end she was very good we'd present the little red square and we get a really nice yawn or what looked to us like a yawn Anna Wilkinson is associate professor of animal cognition at the University of Lincoln School of Life Sciences where she's also leading the cold-blooded cognition lab investigating how reptiles and amphibians perceive the world and how this can actually help improve reptile welfare and captivity, as well as reptile conservation. So how did you get interested in studying reptile cognition in the first place? So during my undergrad and, um, and after that, I always had a fascination with animal cognition and I knew it was animal cognition that I wanted to study. But initially, I thought I wanted to study primates. So I went to Borneo when I was um, younger and I was fascinated watching the orangutans. And so I always wanted to go and study um, apes, orangutans or gibbons. And I did that after graduating for a little while. And I found that actually what I really liked doing was doing experiments. So being able to make manipulation and make predictions on the basis of that. And so I was offered a PhD doing exactly that with birds. So I was very fortunate and took that up. And during my PhD, um, I was sitting in a lecture by one of the professors that I worked with. And he was talking about rats in mazes. And I said to him, I said, well, Jeff, Moses could do that. And Moses is my red-footed tortoise. And that's how we started doing our work with the reptiles. Great. So why do you think that earlier research failed in demonstrating that reptiles could also achieve, for example, like some very simple cognitive tests? So I think there are a number of reasons, but I think one of the crucial issues with the earlier work is that they tested the animals in inappropriate conditions. So for example, if you take a tropical reptile and test it in a cold room, it's not going to do anything. And that's because it can't, not because it doesn't have the cognitive abilities, but actually because they're ectothermic and they need the um, environment around them to be an appropriate temperature. Sure. So after your PhD, I think you moved to Australia and there you set up a lab called the Cold Blooded Lab, yeah. uh, where I think you did some very interesting research. So what was it about? So when I was in Vienna, again, I was actually officially working with birds, but um, I showed my boss Ludwig some of my early work with Moses and he was very excited. And so he allowed me to set up the cold-blooded cognition lab. And um, during that time, we expanded quite extensively and I got more animals and I became very interested in the interactions between those animals. So from observing them, you could see that generally they would choose to feed in an area near where another animal was feeding, for example. And I wanted to really look at what social cues they could use and how they could use it. So I did a number of studies looking at different aspects of social cognition from social learning to gaze following and of course, the contagious yawning work. Sure. So coming to this um, contagious yawning work. So Moses, your, your former <laughs> subject, and I think others did well in rising tortoise smartness recognition. 
But there is one test that's, that is famous, but that they failed in achieving. So what is the story about? So absolutely. So again, from observing them interact, when one of them yawned, it appeared as if some of the others were yawning as well. And I'd ha- read quite a lot about, of work about contagious yawning in the past. And I was really interested to try it in tortoises as it would allow us to really sort of test some of the ideas that we have about um, the mechanisms actually underlying this ability. And so we went about doing it, maybe not in the most efficient way, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to be able to produce a yawn on cue because at that point we didn't know what tortoises saw in videos, whether they were appropriate to use with them or not. And so we trained Alexandra, one of the tortoises, to yawn when we presented her with a little red stimulus. And that took forever. That took about six months to train her to do that. But by the end, she was very good. We'd present the little red square and we'd get a really nice yawn or what looked to us like a yawn. And so then we set up conditions where another tortoise was observing her. We presented the stimulus, she yawned. And the question was, what does the other tortoise do? And what we found was they yawn sometimes and not other times. And we found that they did that in all the control conditions as well. So we found absolutely no difference at all across the conditions. And we then tried a number of other different manipulations, multiple yawns. We'd also, in the meantime, done some work looking at videos and found that they could actually use videos. So we then looked at a video of a real yawn. And yet again, we found absolutely no effect, which in itself is really interesting because actually it starts to tell us that it could be something which is really cognitively incredibly sophisticated and potentially based on empathy, which a lot of people had already hypothesized, but had never tested with species which we think may not possess empathy. Very interesting. So this led you to win an Ig Nobel Prize in 2011, right? It did indeed, yes. And it was chaotic so when we got contacted about it we all decided it was a good thing we knew that um, Shige Watanabe had won one and he said yes definitely it's great and then when it was announced I couldn't leave my phone for more than three seconds (laughs) it was the world media went absolutely crazy about the tortoises and it's brilliant because what it did was it really got the work out there and got people thinking about these animals in really different ways Great. So, I mean, when you found this result, no contagious yearning, did you, did you think, did you plan that you could, you could win search in a while? Not at all. In fact, I'd called the paper something quite different, like, can red-footed tortoises yawn contagiously or something like that? And the reviewers said to me, no, you have to say red-footed tortoises cannot. And so I just wrote this title without even thinking about it in that sense and submitted it. It got published and it didn't even occur to me at all. But we were delighted when we found out we'd won. Well, it's great. That's a negative result. I <laughs> Absolutely. So you are now in Japan, here in Inuyama, and you're working on a project with tortoises at the Japan Monkey Center, next to the Primate Research Institute. So where I think you want to combine uh, cognitive research and cognitive enrichment for those animals. So can you tell us a bit about this project? It's not really about that. I thought you wanted to develop some touch panels for the tortoise. And I was thinking that at the same time of like doing research, it could also serve as... 
So we, we, it does. For me, any cognition experiments serve as enrichment for the animals which are doing them. I think it's incredibly important that animals who are kept in captivity are um, presented with tasks, with things to solve as they would be in nature. And these might be arbitrary, they might be with touchscreens, but actually it tests the same sort of problems that they're required to solve. And for me, that's extremely important. Um, the tortoises at the JMC, I'm delighted to be working with them. They're lovely tortoises. And um, we're doing a collaborative project where we're looking at numerosity in tortoises. So um, what d different numbers and different quantities that they can discriminate. And this has never really been looked at at all before in reptiles. And of course, it's something that the um, PRI is famous for. So we're really interested in doing a comparative study to really look at where um, reptiles make the errors and compare them across many other species. Great. So by working hard on a better analyzing tortoises and reptiles smartness recognition, are you also thinking of like having any impact on conservation education? I'm very interested in conservation and I'm interested in it from a number of different aspects. Um, I think it's extremely important that we consider reptiles when we think about conservation, but I don't think we should just consider them as sort of some inanimate objects that, yeah, they need a forest or they need a this. Actually, we need to start to understand what stimuli are relevant to them, how they do move about their environment, and then we can protect it as appropriate, appropriately. And I've recently started work looking at the impact of cognition on ecosystems processes. So for example, seed dispersal, because actually where an animal, if an animal is choosing food, that impacts the fruiting tree that it goes to. If it's ectothermic, it then goes to a sunspot and then it might um, defecate and then seeds are released. And of course, what an animal knows impacts incredibly importantly on that process. If it can remember things for a long period of time, it will go to different places than if it can't. And we've actually recently started a project looking at um, the impact of cognition on, um, on these aspects. And we're using the tortoises as a model species for that. Cool. And then kind of as a follow-up question, so Moses was your pet and it was also a red-footed tortoise, which is classified by the International <laughs> Union for Conservation of Nature as vulnerable. So what do you think of having reptile as pets in general? I think it's a, it's a very difficult question. And I think one of the crucial aspects of keeping reptiles as pets is actually our knowledge of how to keep them. And one of the really big problems which we currently face is that people have these animals and they aren't kept in appropriate conditions. And as such, a lot of them are in really a bad way. Often by the time they get to vets, it's far too late for them to do anything. And if you consider that in comparison to, say, um, mammals that we keep as pets, we're actually quite good at noticing if a mammal is not well maybe because it responds in the same way as we do, because we're mammals. Whereas if a reptile is not well, we're not very good at noticing that change in behavior. We say, oh, he's not doing anything. Oh, well, that's okay, it's a reptile. And so a lot of what um, I'm very keen on working on at the moment is actually looking at what signs we can use for, for spotting the well-being of an animal, of, of a reptile, and how we can use that to inform the public if they are keeping them as pets, First of all, how should they keep them? 
And then what to look out for? How do we know if they're not well? And it's something which is remarkably, we know almost nothing about. Great. So you told me earlier that uh, you have been uh, yourself to South America and the natural habitat of those uh, tortoises. And when we were discussing about the different threats that um, might have an impact on the survival of those species, you told me that perhaps um, tradition of eating those tortoises is probably the most um, threatening factors for them. From my perspective, I think it is. I think one of the big problems with red-footed tortoises is they're inquisitive, which makes them fabulous for cognition studies. But it, they're also quite inquisitive of noises, of things happening in their environment. And, um, and you hear stories that they come out to get to, to look at people. And of course, and they get picked up, they get taken and they get eaten. And um, it is a really big threat to them because they don't run away. What they will do is go in their shell if they're scared. But of course, that means they're extremely easy for us to pick up. It's, um, it seems to be a real problem in some areas where they live. And um, as you said, part of it is custom. So it is traditional to eat them in cer on certain days for certain um, celebrations, should we say. Um, and they are pretty easy to catch. And so I think these two aspects are potentially causing real problems for them in the wild. You, you also mentioned earlier that um, in Europe, for example, it's very strict, the, the pet trade and uh, breeding those species in captivity, and that, in fact, they are quite hard to, to get as pets. Absolutely. Tortoises in particular, this is. So um, many species have to be captive bred, and they're actually very expensive which in my opinion is brilliant because what it means is you don't get one unless you really are interested in them and you aren't going to spend hundreds of pounds on on an animal without bothering to do any research. Whereas in, um, in the past, you could go down to your pet shop and find your um, Greek tortoise for two and sixpence or whatever it was and everybody had them and they never lasted very long. And so for me, the real hiking price is incredibly important for their welfare. Thank you very much, Hannah Wilkinson. No problem. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.ciasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.